Greetings, dear listeners. A few weeks back, a book title caught my eye. It was called Two Billion Caliphs, written by Haroon Mughal. Mixing personal narrative and theological ruminations, it promised to offer a bold new vision for Muslims living in the 21st century. Being that we frequently talk about the importance of religion in the modern world, I shot Shadi a link to the book. Turns out Shadi already knew Haroon in real life, so we invited him on. We think he will enjoy this one. Using Haroon's personal story as a jumping off point, we talked about how 9-11 did and didn't change everything for Muslims in America, how secularism and liberalism drive assimilation for good and for ill, and the surprising dynamic between Trump and Muslim Americans in politics. If you're a paying member, you'll get access to the whole conversation, with Shadi and Haroon debating how best to talk about politics and Islam, and with Haroon outlining his vision for how to approach Islamic tradition in a forward-looking and wholly modern way, with everyone a caliph. As always, to get access to the full episode, please become a paying member at wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe. On to the show. First of all, welcome, Haroon, to the podcast. It's good to have you. Good to be here. Thank you. So what I what I like a lot about this book, well, first of all, it's, it's very personal. Um, and I think this, along with your previous book, which was suggestively titled How to Be a Muslim, um, they're not quite memoirs, but you've been through a lot. I mean, you've been part of, and I know you from like, I guess the Muslim scene. I don't remember exactly how we met, but you've sort of been on the Muslim radar, if I can call it that for quite a while. You're a veteran of that particular scene in America. Um, But during this process and this period of time, post 9-11 onwards, you've, um, you've kind of gone through your own ideological and religious evolution. And I was struck by this um, in your new book, um, Two Billion Caliphs, because I didn't know a lot about your own personal story and what you had been through. And you're very open about that. And it's it's it makes for some pretty stark reading. And maybe I can just start by giving listeners a sense of wh- what you talk about at the start. So you say, for example, um, I hope you never fall to earth like I did, but you might. And here you're talking to the reader um, and kind of hoping that they don't have to go through what you went through. Um, and then you're um, you're also just kind of reflecting here and you're saying um, to yourself, uh, you've got a great job, a kind and accomplished partner, an academic trajectory that appears overwhel- overwhelmingly promising, Many people would die for your bad days, but many people don't know your bad days. So um, a lot of interesting things there. And then I I laughed out loud at this. I thought this was pretty amusing that you're thinking about your own epitaph, like when you when you pass and then you're imagining people saying about you, quote unquote, at every turn, Haroon made the worst possible choice. In this, he was like the late 19th century Ottoman Empire, <laughs> which which I like. And for people who are familiar with the decline of the Ottoman Empire, they might appreciate that too. So maybe just like with some of those thoughts in mind, tell us a little bit about your personal journey, how that has changed your views on Islam, 
how does the personal and the political mesh with you? And I think it's also fair to say that you're in a much better place now. And part of this book is about your own kind of um, being able to get past this very difficult period in your life as well. I suppose the tragic irony is what if what if I wasn't the late 19th century Ottoman Empire but but what if the United States was and so here I am thinking that I've I've turned a corner and and I found stability and contentment and a positive direction in my life and and meanwhile the empire is crumbling and little do I know where I'll end up in in 5 years Demir is in in Croatia so I'm sure he'll be he'll be safe he'll be fine I don't know shielded man I don't know the, shielded don't know. from the fallout well, I don't um, know we're in the we're in the crumbling European empire we can talk about that later <laughs> so, crumbling empires but no that's that's a great question I it's funny because you know I was raised so just by way of background and, and I don't want to get too too stuck in that but uh I was raised in a very religious household with a very strong religious consciousness, especially from my mother's side. My mother is from, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a, a scholarly family. Her her father, his father, and, and going back up many, many generations were uh, qadis, as in they were judges trained in Sharia law. They were writers, poets, philosophers. You can find their books in many academic libraries uh, across the United States, I'm sure, and in other parts of the world. And so there was this very intense legacy and this very strong exposure to religion. But there's a difference between knowing something in the abstract and, and understanding it experientially, which is why I appreciated that you you started with the more personal and, and going from there to the larger argument or the larger thesis of the book is probably the best way to do it. Because for me, I, I understood in a in an abstract sense that yes, no one is quite ever in control of their own destiny and, and no one's life necessarily, or most people's lives, I should say, don't work out the way they, they expected them to and, and sometimes painfully so. And, and certainly we see that in the world writ large, whether in the United States or elsewhere. But for me, this was, was quite jarring to be raised with an expectation that I would accomplish so on and so forth in my life by certain points in my life by certain ages, professionally, academically, personally, maritally, generationally, so on and so forth. And then those things didn't pan out. And, and that was kind of a, a massive shock to the system. And if there is a benefit to shocks to the system, it is that it, it forces us to go back to our founding assumptions and our core ideas and ask ourselves, okay, what went wrong? Did something go wrong? And and how do I get myself out of this situation? And you you write at one point that Muslimness chewed you up and spit you out. Can you say a bit more about what that means? Sure. So, I mean, Shadia, likewise, I don't exactly remember how we met, but I, I've known about <laughs> you and followed your work for a long time. I, I think actually it was, uh, I think I, I might have emailed you after something you'd written and, and maybe we'd started an occasional correspondence or something of the kind. But for me, I grew up in a very small, very non-diverse uh, New England town and had that very strong Muslim upbringing, but wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with myself religiously, professionally, so on and so forth. So I, I thought to myself, I'm going to go to the biggest city I can find for college and, and there I'll discover other Muslims, Muslim communities, diverse experiences, and really learn. I've always had this passion for trying to understand my faith background and, and the faiths of people around me. And so I went to New York University and in that regard, it was a, a great decision. Uh, and, and then several years into my undergraduate life, 9-11 happened. And, and as it did for probably any identifiably Muslim uh, 
person in, in the United States or the West or, or maybe anywhere in the world, it fundamentally upended a lot of our expectations of how our lives would go. And so I was in the middle of this transformation where I was trying to figure out what relationship I wanted to have to my religion. And then suddenly my religion became the centerpiece of this massive global conversation and conflict. And when you're in that position, and I'm sure everyone can, or many people can relate to this kind of thing in, in some respects, you start to feel like if you are to be open about your doubts and your questions and your anxieties, you are being disloyal. And, and that's yeah. the worst possible thing you can do when you feel like your community is under attack, and, and literally so in, in, in many instances, certainly in New York and, and in other parts of the world. And so I just clammed up. And because I had this background and, and I was comfortable speaking publicly and, and I felt this moral obligation, I found myself in the role of a public or professional Muslim. And externally, I'm, I'm delivering one narrative, and, and some of it, I think, was genuine, and some of it was quite tortured and conflicted. And then internally, I'm having these questions and conversations that I can't have with anyone else. And so in that sense, being Muslim did chew me up and, and spit me out. And so I titled the memoir, the last book that you referenced, How to Be a Muslim. It was sort of tongue in cheek. It was a little bit of, it wasn't really how to be a Muslim, although I have many disappointed readers who <laughs> I think assumed that they were buying a book on how to be a Muslim and possibly purchased it for their their young children. And, and that was not a good move. Uh, but we can get into the emails later. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, all the same, it, I, I really wanted to say, look, this didn't work out the way I thought it would. And, and I'd like to figure out why. And writing was, for me, a way to figure out why. So, you know, what's, what's striking to me, Haroon, uh, reading the book, because it's, it's sort of what Shadi is getting at. It. It's, it's several things. It's, um, it's very personal. It's an account of uh, you coming to terms with your faith, your tradition. To me, it's also... A, uh, I think an attempt at a portrait at a, what is I, I think you know I, I, you describe it that way in parts of the book as well is is a particular uh, Western Muslim experience growing up in the West growing up in the United States. Uh, there's parts in the anecdotes where you talk about that, but I think it it also helps shape sort of uh, your relationship to the tradition. Uh, it's 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 an individualistic take on Islam, um, which I, I, I have to say, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not in the tradition. I'm, uh, you know, just try and keep myself, uh, be like an educated person and understand enough of it. I guess going into the book, I was, I was surprised at that. I guess I shouldn't be because I'm really good friends with Shadi and, and he is also very much in the, you know, sort of westernized muslim individual approach to things but it was really interesting reading your book and and getting that aspect of it <clears throat> and then there's the the third part of it which is uh an attempt to uh re i guess reimagine uh sort of a a more positive i think you described it as a more positive or maybe more productive approach to for modern muslims to relate to the tradition to make it somehow more relevant is that is that is that like a fair characterization of the book? Yeah. What do you what do you guys? Uh, I'm and now I'm drawing a blank because I'm I'm turning forty two actually in two days, so my brain just doesn't work the way uh, it maybe it never did, but certainly doesn't work nearly <laughs> as good as I I hoped it would at this point in my life. But priors, right? That's the the term that that you guys often use, and it, it's funny because I, I spent basically it's been you know, 21 years now since since 9-11 changed the conversation around Islam in America and, and put Islam front and center for, for many of those years. And 
would go from place to place to place, explaining Islam, introducing Islam, discussing Islam, answering questions about Islam. And I'm sure many people can can relate to this whenever you have an identity that's poorly understood or misunderstood, you find yourself in the position of being uh, the unwitting ambassador or emissary of, of that tradition or perspective. And the one of the reasons I started writing the book, and books never end up being what you think they're going to be, they always end up going in, in different directions and, and challenging us, which is, I think, the joy of writing and the surprise of writing. But I, I wanted to explain Islam to an American audience. And as I started doing the, the background research and looking at what was out there, I realized that there's a fair amount of books that do a decent job of talking about who Muslims are, where they live, chronologies, geographies, sectarianisms, definitions. And that's all very important. By no means do I want to undercount or discount that. But I felt what was missing was this kind of sense of why. As in, why would someone commit to or shape their life according to something that seems so strange and unfamiliar, maybe menacing, maybe at times ridiculous or dangerous, and, and yet lots of people do, maybe not quite two billion, but somewhere on the order of that. And, and so the book was, it, it did start as this attempt to explain why, and then I think exactly as you pointed out, it sort of became a little bit of a, not just why, but but what does this mean, right? From description to prescription, what are we supposed to do with this? And, and what are Western Muslims supposed to do with this? Because we certainly, our destiny is not the destiny of Muslims in the so-called Muslim world. I think especially with the events of the last several months and the kind of, uh, I, I don't know what the, the right term is, but the, the breakdown of certain narratives of globalization, I think that we Western Muslim communities are going to have a very different evolution uh, or, or direction than our co-religionists in, in other parts of the world. So there's <clears throat> something really interesting about that, what you were just saying, because, you know, I, I picked up on that, I, I think when I started reading the book, and I think maybe the way the book is set up at the beginning is a bit more of an explainer. But then I, I feel like, you know, even by, I don't know, chapter four or five already, when you're getting uh, into, into you know, uh, basically stories from the Quran, you're recounting the history it, it seems to almost shift uh, that it, it's no longer really a primer. Now, again, I, I feel like I, I had enough of a background that I didn't struggle through any of it, but it was it was certainly not a a uh, it was it was much more deeply philosophically engaged. I feel with a lot of this stuff than I would have expected from uh, you know if you were if you were just addressing to a more general audience. I did feel like you were speaking to Muslims almost you know quickly uh, within a few chapters. It, I felt like there was maybe even a shift in there. Yeah, I and and maybe I didn't quite realize what I was doing until I had done it and and written it and and the book was delayed because of COVID and and obviously a lot has happened in the last year and a half pretty much since the book entered publication. But there was definitely this feeling like okay, uh, we're we're going to have to figure out a religious identity and definition and and way of being that isn't dependent on the Muslim world and. I think that subtly and, and perhaps implicitly, a lot of Western Muslims understood that, but I don't think we quite have gotten a handle on on how different religion might play out in, in the case of Western Muslim communities, which, of course, you know, we were talking about this earlier, Demi, are, are hugely diverse from uh, Albania to to. Alberta, and you have very different types of communities and, and demographics and traditions, but there is this larger Western context that we all live within and, and certain assumptions and realities that we have to contend with. And, and I don't think that we have a lot 
in terms of what we're getting in terms of cultural production, intellectual production from the Muslim majority world that is going to really connect for us and to us. And, and this is hopefully just a try, like an attempt to try and say, can we, can we start to think about who we want to be independently of, of what other Muslim communities are? But yeah, I think, but something else has also changed in the last few years. And, you know, I think when your first book came out, that was just about the time when Trump had won. Muslims were very much in the news 24-7 with obviously the Muslim ban. And Trump did used to talk about Muslims and Islam quite a lot. And that was also during the time of the fallout from the Syrian refugee crisis and ISIS and all of that. And I think you kind of, you, you make note of the fact that when you wrote your first book, you didn't actually expect it to do particularly well, but it happened to come out at a particular moment and it spoke to a lot of people. And as a result, a lot of people were asking you to kind of shed light on Islam and the Muslim experience and so forth. And then also, I'm glad you brought up 9-11 earlier, because certainly after 9-11, and I'm a, I'm a couple years younger than you, um, 9-11 happened in my freshman year, and it was very much defining for me in any number of ways. And I think as, I guess you're not technically a millennial, you just missed out, Haroon, is that correct? You're not, right? This is this is a matter of, of great debate in the house. The kids are convinced that I'm a boomer, uh, but I, I don't know <laughs> if they have sources of information that I don't have access to. Uh, I, I fully admit to the fact that I'm, I'm pretty culturally ignorant right now, but I, I think I'm I'm Gen X. Maybe Gen X. Okay, I think, yeah, I think so. you are. I'm, I'm like, I think I'm, I'm 1980. I'm 76 and I'm definitely Gen X. So yeah, I think that's right. Demir is old. <laughs> Demir is an old man. That's right. That's right. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong. No, I own, I, I own it. I own it. I forget my age, but I own the. I own that it's that it's advanced at this point. <laughs> but 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 it's interesting that yeah. So like nine eleven happens, it defines us, and we all share that. So like if you're anywhere from like the age of let's say um, early thirties to um, to your age and beyond, Haroon, nine eleven was crucial for us. It defined how we view our own. I mean, the trajectory of our own lives. Really, I mean, my life certainly changed, and it, and I think your life changed to various degrees as well. But I think what's different today compared to the Trump period, and then compared to post nine eleven, is that I would I would argue that we as Muslims are no longer at the forefront of the public debate. I would even say that people have basically forgotten about us. I mean, even in the twenty twenty campaign, Trump barely talked about Muslims, which was a major shift compared to 2016. And that's part of what I think allowed a growing number of Muslims to move towards Trump. I mean, according to some of the exit polls, as many as 30 to 35% of American Muslims voted for Donald Trump in 2020, compared to only about 10% in 2016. So we're entering a moment now as Muslims when, you know, obviously there's still anti-Muslim bigotry, especially on the Republican side, but it's not as pronounced. And it's worth noting, and I, I like to note the delicious irony of this, um, if you'll indulge me, Haroon, that um, we are on the brink of historic moment as Americans. We might very well have the first American Muslim senator in American history. Dr. Oz. And all... <laughs> and all thanks to the efforts of Donald Trump. So here I'm talking about 
Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania and Donald Trump was a huge booster and supporter and it wouldn't have been possible without him. So, and, and people barely even felt compelled to make note of that because it, it would have otherwise seen as be, been seen as like a little bit odd. Oh, what's going on here? Like, okay. So, I mean, how do you, how do you process these shifts? And do you, do you agree with me that Muslims are no longer that controversial? I mean, it may not last. We'll have to wait and see. Well, I, I will actually, I just, the, the first thing that came to mind actually when, when you mentioned uh, Dr. Oz, I actually wondered, has anyone ever asked him about the Muslim ban just out of curiosity, given that he is uh, himself uh, an immigrant? I just wonder if he, you know, he's ever been kind of put on the spot about that. But um, yeah, maybe not. But I, <laughs> it just seems like an obvious kind of, it'd be <laughs> like a good, it'd be a good easy op ed, you know, just get a comment from his campaign and, you know, just a couple paragraphs after that. But, um, <laughs> if, but what, you know, I, I think you're, you're honestly, you're completely right. And it's, uh, it's an unfortunate fact that a lot of the people who, and I have to say this very carefully, who have seen themselves as representatives of American Islam, uh, in the post 9-11 period, a number of them invested very heavily in a narrative of a Muslim community under attack, which, of course, there are, there are significant elements of truth to, but I, I think you're exactly right. I, I moved out to Ohio. I live outside of Cincinnati now. I moved out here about a year and a half ago, close to two years ago, actually. And of course, when I first moved here, it was COVID, so there wasn't a lot of interaction. The mosque was pretty much closed. And as things opened up, COVID ended in Ohio much faster than in other parts of the country, uh, I, I think, because Republicans have a natural immunity. But, uh, you know, things <laughs> things opened up very quickly. That was a joke. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it definitely opened up and started talking to people and was actually shocked at how many people I met who expressed sympathy for Trump from, from the Muslim community. And it occurred to me that it, it goes in both directions. It's not just that Trump himself and and a lot of people on the right, though, of course, as you you rightly pointed out, not everyone, but a lot of people no longer feel like Muslims are the the bogeyman, right? We're not we're not the center of anyone's attention. We probably just didn't make that formidable or interesting an enemy. It just kind of petered out after a few years because there wasn't enough there to to generate the amount. And of there's also a, a replacement. Wanted. We've been replaced by woke people. So whatever yes. one thinks about wokeness. At the very least, they have allowed Muslims to kind of recede into the background a little bit. So thank you, woke people. <laughs> what do we do with the woke Muslims? Like, what is that? What happens there? Oh, true. True. Are they, are they, so I don't, um, that's, that the, pro that's to... the problem with, with overlapping American communities. You can belong to many of them and it's, it just gets very complicated very quickly. Well, it's, it's so interesting because I thought to myself, if, if all these Muslims are open to even just publicly praising different parts of, of the Trump legacy and the Trump administration, then it means that they themselves don't feel targeted. It's not just that the narrative on the right is no longer interested in Muslims, but that Muslims themselves, or at least a significant number of Muslims, just don't feel that we are that targeted or we're that much of a, a an issue of concern, which I think in some ways, in some ways is perhaps weird, but is actually immensely liberating because for the first time in basically my adult life, uh, given, you know, again, when 9-11 happened, it's really the first time where nobody really cares that much how Muslims in America and the West choose to identify themselves. Maybe not so much in the West. I mean, of course, it's a different conversation in places like France, but in the U.S., we've, we've basically become just a 
a minority that is not of particular concern. And I think the Dr. Oz point is is exactly on point. That I actually wrote in the book in the, in the last chapter that we, we're spending too much time on Islamophobia. We should also consider the community's potential strengths and impacts. And, and someday soon we may have a Muslim senator. And I was thinking along the lines of like a Keith Ellison running for Senate. I did not imagine that it would be uh, Dr. Oz, uh, let alone someone picked by Trump and, and pushed by Trump. And, you know, someone who has a, a pretty decent shot, it seems, of winning. I saw some polls today. It looks kind of grim, but I don't know. I mean, we'll see. <laughs> We'll see. Come on, Tim. Here, <laughs> it it does look kind of grim. Yeah, I, uh, there's there's also these health concerns going on, so we don't even know. I mean, I don't know. It, it's it's kind of Doctor Oz in the Senate. Like, what what would the founding fathers do with that? I don't know. I, th- I think I think honestly, but but honestly, just hearing you talk about it, I mean. You know, Shad, Shadi's, Shadi's, uh, this is he's been trotting this this joke out on Twitter for weeks now, and it's a good one. Uh, but uh, and even on the show, I think we've done it several episodes now. But but again, it's it it is a testament to something about America, right? About about the the fact that, and it's something that it's a case I've made before that uh, you know. I really do think that Obama, if if, if we didn't have a, a term limit thing, Obama would would have destroyed Trump, and we would have had a completely different narrative about about a, a whole lot of other things after 2016. Because yeah. you know, and and it's it's interesting how it's just, and this is not to to in any way I think uh, diminish the the real kind of problems that we have and the real kind of resentments that Obama was actually stirring up in the body politic, but America's like a much bigger and actually much more amorphous and more shifting place. And I think people give it credit to, especially lately in these debates about, about identity and about, you know, belonging. I mean, the American, the American uh, uh, capacity to, to adapt Americanness to all sorts of faiths, traditions, peoples, you know, newcomers is really is a remarkable thing. Absolutely. And and I just have to say, there's also something deliciously beautiful about the fact that potentially the first Muslim senator is a doctor, because <laughs> most Americans, their only exposure to Muslims is their doctor. So it's not weird to them. It's like, oh, my doctor is also a senator, but he's still a doctor. So and even his first name is doctor. So it's Oh, good point. Kind of yes. Yeah, his name is Dr. Oz. I mean, it, it's... <laughs> it's perfect. It's just, it's perfect, yeah. So, Haru, yeah. Let, me, let me ask you one question that, that's, um, you know, it's not, it's even as you're introducing the book right now, but also it's in the book itself. It's, it's you know, in right after 9-11, you're explaining Islam to America. And so you're at the same time sort of exploring um, what it means to be a Muslim in America. Can you maybe tease out the difference between what that was and then what it is by the end of this book. So we can sort of get talking about some of these bigger things. Because let me just say as a, as a prompt, I think one of the, the really interesting themes in the book, and I think, you know, my conclusion after reading it is that uh, at least you, and, and insofar as, as you're broadly representative of a lot of, I would say, you know, uh, liberal Muslims in America, um, there's a, there's a, a tension between, uh, I guess what is a, uh, a political tradition within Islam and there's a, a real push on your part to pull your faith away from politics in a weird way. Um, is that fair to say? Is that, is that too, 
too too oversimplified and you want to like complicate that a bit no i i think that's fair to say so i i feel like there's two questions there so i'll try to i'll try to tackle the first one first and I, so i what i'll say by way of background is you, your point on the the capaciousness of america and and how how much diversity we contain and somehow we we're able to channel is actually endlessly uh, surprising and, and reassuring and in the american muslim case and and shadi feel free to jump in if you think i'm wrong but i i think that around 2001 there basically were a few different streams of american islam and the the older one of course was was the black muslim community that uh the trajectory includes the nation of islam and and malcolm x and muhammad ali and and that that remarkably influential tradition and then there's people who come mostly beginning in the 60s and 70s many of them are professionals from the middle east south asia and i actually think that if it were not for 9 11 I don't know what would have happened to immigrant origin Muslim communities, because in, in some respects, many of us were quite well to do with parents who are educated professionals. We had remarkable access to a lot of different things in American society. We were also very geographically uh, widely dispersed. We did not really concentrate in, in many places, right? Just, you know, there was one doctor for each suburb kind of thing. And, uh, and then on top of that, we're very small in number in terms of the entire American population. I actually wonder if we would have just disappeared. That that 9-11 really forced this – the TSA basically converted more people to Islam than, than any American Muslim institution ever has, right? Because suddenly people who maybe had only a loose affiliation with Islam found themselves securitized and, and profiled and, and under suspicion regardless of, of who they were and what they did, whether they were – religious, conservative, progressive, what have you, uh, there was this just wide-ranging kind of who are Muslims and should we trust them and what are they doing here kind of thing. And and I think that now we're, if anything, I feel like I don't know if we're resurfacing as if the last 20 years didn't happen and we're going back to old patterns. So as Shadi pointed out, in, you know, in 2000, I think 70% of American Muslims voted for George W. Bush. Uh, and so, you know, these sort of natural political conservative instincts are popping back up again after they were suppressed because of the, the post 9-11 environment, or we're simply just a very different community. And Part of that, of course, is the fact that a lot of people came to America in the last 20 years who were not here immediately after or before 9-11. And, and that's part of the Muslim story in America, too. And they have different experiences and, and perspectives and priorities, too. So it's just this massively complicated community. Uh, for me, I think that that the, the big thing right now is to figure out if we are going to be a, 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 an ideal identitarian community or we're going to be a faith-based community and i don't think there's necessarily a single answer i think we're going to fragment between different uh perspectives but i think that's where we are right now and i don't know if that answered your question precisely but i feel like that's what you were you were pushing towards yeah Haroon, can you say a bit more about distinguishing between what a faith-based community is and what an identitarian community is what does that really mean to you and to what extent are they really discrete categories so I think that an identitarian community is one where there is more stress on Islam as an ethnic marker, as a heritage. Uh, we hear a lot of terms like secular Muslim, cultural Muslim, atheist Muslim, and that's definitely part of the American Muslim experience. And there's a lot of energy and creativity invested into elaborating on that and developing that. And I certainly think people who are more progressive from outside the Muslim community are more comfortable with that kind of Islam. At the same time, there's also... Uh, elements of the Muslim community which are more focused on a more 
I, I hate the word because it's very loaded, but traditional or, or faith-based kind of you know perspective that that embodies itself not necessarily in how we identify or or a heritage so much as certain uh ritual commitments and practices some of which are very visible some of which are not and i think that's a big tension and i think it was artificially suppressed after 9 11 and now it's come back up to the surface because what really do these very different types of people have in common uh, politically culturally religiously so on and so forth i don't know and it seems to me that part of this has to do with partisan affiliation as well, that to be part of the Democratic Party means to be part of this broader patchwork of ethnic and identity-based groups where you're a minority insofar as you're marginalized, and you're not so much a minority based on faith or theology, because as we know, the Democratic Party isn't exactly the most hospitable towards people and communities of faith. I mean, uh, especially if you're white, but even if you're brown, that's not what they necessarily want to emphasize. They want to emphasize that, oh, you're Muslim, you're brown, you're a person of color. These are your identities and you're Muslim insofar as, um, uh, you know, in the sense of heritage, as you said, in the sense of background, and that you can basically be a secular Muslim and you're fine being part of the Democratic Party and, and you're a very important part of the Democratic Party, but just don't maybe emphasize too much of the religious conservatism. So if you have conservative views about LGBTQ issues, maybe don't make that very pronounced. Or if you're somewhat sympathetic to the Republicans on critical race theory, maybe don't talk too much about that. So there's sort of almost this implicit bargain that you know, you're know you Muslim and that means you're marginalized. It's not that you're Muslim, that means that you have these very serious faith commitments. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. I remember I took a, a class uh, on, on Judaism uh, taught by uh, a prominent rabbi and he opened it up with this kind of perspective that many people in the room found very challenging. And it was actually illuminating of how, how often, I mean, speaking of myself, but maybe many other people, we talk about religion, we don't understand how differently religion is processed by different people, right? It's not like a, it's not an easy category where, you know, all religions are x or all religions or y and and he said that in in judaism he he laughed what was the joke he said which i i thought was hilarious he said jews are people who believe in one god or less and you know he <laughs> what he meant was it, that there is a sense of peoplehood that is not just maybe the word's not independent of theology but almost supersedes theology and 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 so you can be jewish culturally and communally and in a very meaningful way without having any necessary commitment to Jewish theology. And many Muslims in the room found it really confusing and really challenging, and, and some of them even upsetting, because they just, for, for them, religion works differently, right? You're, you're part of the ummah, you're part of the Muslim community because of your theological commitments and, and not the other way around. And so this was, it was requiring them to think differently. And, and I think that, uh, Demir, to, to your point, we're now Western Muslims, and maybe the Muslim majority world is, is getting here too with social media and, and, and mainstream global culture and so on and so forth. But we're really, at the, I think, maybe the first point in our history where we really don't know what it what it means to self-identify as Muslim, right? That there's no longer a, like a, a small group of people who can arrogate to themselves the right to interpret what Islam means. And so there are, like you said, Shadi, there are 
Muslims will identify culturally and, and by heritage, and then Muslims will identify theologically. And, and we're sort of in the middle of this great contest for the future of Islam. And the recession of the post-9-11 narrative, the end of the war on terror, uh, or at least its its suspension for now, means that it is kind of a free-for-all. And, and nobody quite knows whose voice is going to uh, triumph in the end. But so that gets, so let's so let's dig. Yeah, go ahead. I, I want to dig deeper here, Demir, and I think you'll probably sympathize with with where I'm going. So I'm a pretty open minded person generally, but you know, and I guess it's not. I don't, doesn't I don't like lose sleep over it. Like when I hear atheist Muslim, it doesn't bother me that much. But I think at some point it's just worth stating, and I don't know if this will be controversial to some of our listeners. But you can't really be an atheist Muslim. You know, I just want to I want to just say that in a somewhat explicit, straightforward way. It doesn't really make any sense. Now, people can say whatever they want about their own identity. And I guess that's what it means to live in a liberal society where it's all about, you know, indulging in one's distinctive identity, even if the identity is nonsensical. And if you believe it, it's true in some sense. Right. You can just make things up. But, you know, at some basic level, I think we got to draw the line and say, yes, maybe you are you you have affinities with Muslim culture. You come from a Muslim background. That's an important part of your heritage and your family background. But you can't really be Muslim if you don't believe in the creedal requirements of Islam. Um, and maybe we can debate what those creedal requirements actually are, and that's fine. And there's been a historical debate about what it actually means to be a Muslim. Great. There's a lot of richness and diversity there. But if you come out and you say that you don't believe in God, it's pretty hard to meet the creedal requirements of Islam. So I, I think, and maybe this gets me to like a more fundamental issue, and maybe this is where I want to push you, Haroon, not really as a criticism, but just to sort of, to try to explore where some of these divergences come from. So I'm someone, as you know, who thinks Islam has a lot to say about politics. So I'm always a little bit nervous when I see attempts to depoliticize Islam or to say that Islam can fit within a liberal framework or that Islam is going to become something more akin to what Christianity and Judaism are in America, which is um, which is less political, although obviously there are currents in both Christianity and Judaism in America that are very political and there's a tension there. So, but um, I would argue um, that, you know, Islam, Islam is fundamentally different because it does have more to say about politics and it does have more to say about public law. Now, you obviously make a distinction in your book where you say, well, yes, Islam does have a lot to say about various issues um, when it comes to law, but that, that doesn't mean the state should impose that. And we obviously live in a secular democratic state. We're a minority. So even if we wanted to change the law, we wouldn't be able to because there's not enough of us in American politics. Um, so there's all that. But... I'm just curious, like if I'm, you know, to the extent that I'm pushing back on this particular point, um, is it good to depoliticize Islam? Is it even necessary? Well, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm really glad you're pushing me on this because I, this is, I, I know one of the, the more contentious uh, arguments I make in the book. Uh, what I will say is, uh, 
there's a lot there. So let me let me try to unpack it a little bit. So the first is, it's funny you said you know you're not losing sleep over it. I'm I'm sort of in a situation where I, I do lose sleep over it, and and perhaps I'm I'm too obsessed with continuity, and and that's my own. Uh, particular insecurities and anxieties uh, as a person and and as someone with you know two teenagers in in his life and and thinks about you know how their identity is is formed and and where they're going and wait you have teenagers thinking. there's there's three kids yeah 15 14 and and 10 and so you know the 10 year olds are are still you know just happy to play xbox but teenagers are are you know in in that stage where they're where they're thinking about uh who they're going to be and, and they're becoming adults. And, and it's this fascinating and, and sometimes uh, challenging process because you're, you're basically acknowledging that they are moral agents who will make their own choices. And, and you can't, you know, not that you should control those choices, but obviously there's this instinct to be protective and, and uh, to, to look after and take care. And, and so I, I do actually wonder about this all the time, but I, I will push back because I, I do agree with you. I think, theologically and and historically yes it doesn't make sense to say i am an atheist and a muslim but in a in a practical or or simply descriptive sense who is to say that someone cannot be that and and what i mean by that is you know if that's the trajectory and to be clear it's not a trajectory i i necessarily would advocate for but if that's the trajectory a significant part of the american muslim or western muslim communities move in namely islam by heritage islam by identity then within a generation or two as that takes root and, and becomes established and, and institutionalized then it's simply just part of the landscape of what it means to be muslim isn't it i mean who who is to say in western islam or american islam i mean of course i can say it argumentatively right i can i can write an op-ed and say oh this is not what Islam is is meant to do, and and perhaps I can choose to affiliate with or support communities that embody the vision that I believe in. But in a in a pluralistic secular democracy, then then what's to prevent that from happening? Now, I don't think, just to be clear, I don't think that that's sustainable because I I, I don't think in a pluralistic secular society, faith identities will sustain themselves if it's merely a matter of heritage. Within a generation or two, that'll disappear. Uh, but at the same time, it may simply be something that is part of the American Muslim landscape. I don't I'm know. I'll just, you know, quickly throw in as a, as a side note, I, I think this is one of the key and one of the mo most fascinating parts of the book. But as a side note, uh, my former boss at the American Interest, um, uh, the, the editor-in-chief there, uh, Orthodox uh, Jew, and he, uh, you know, is, it's one of the things that he was, he was most uh, keenly attuned to was American Jews secularizing and then intermarrying. Um, and and basically being lost to Judaism, and mm -hmm. I, you know it's one of the interesting things about about um, I, you even alluded to it just now when you were talking about uh, this professor talking about Judaism, and it is it is that 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 attitude about uh, you know that the Jews are a people uh, as well as the faith, right? And that that it's it it it, it leans heavier into the people, I think, than than um, than either. Uh, Islam or Christianity ever does. Their Christianity and Islam seems to be much more free or floating uh, sort of faiths. But one of the interesting tensions, again, and even when you're describing this, Haroon, is at one point in the book you talk about the fact that that um, one of the strengths of Islam uh, is that it never became nationalized, that it never became a state religion. You say that you know one of the 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 uh, the fortunate things why the the you know immediately after after the uh, prophet muhammad uh died uh that that 
the the caliphate didn't last long very well there. You said that if it did, it could have then become a nationalized sort of thing, and that you may have then developed sort of Islam as a national identity. So, I mean, there's even a tension there, because right now you're saying about this idea that, well, you know, Islam is what, what you say it is. But uh, you're also, the other way, when you think about this becoming nationalized, it would seem that that you'd want it to remain sort of a faith doctrine. So you'd have to actually adhere to faith and not have it just be this sort of free-floating identity marker. That would be a bad thing from your perspective, perhaps. Yeah. So I, what, what I guess I, I, I would I, I'd try to clarify is that for me, it is an, and should be a faith marker. And more than that, it's unlikely to sustain itself as merely a marker of heritage in a, a small minority in a very diverse and pluralistic society is unlikely to to see identity markers transmit themselves generationally over time. I, I think that's that's simply uh, a, an uphill struggle that's going to end badly for those who are invested in in that worldview. I think it's it's the same thing you mentioned to your former boss. Uh, you know, it, once faith becomes an identity marker, it no longer dictates choices you make, and and then that in turn transmits itself to the next generation and the next generation, and within a few generations, uh, that that marker has effectively disappeared. It's no different than when many of my friends growing up in high school said they were Irish or Italian. There was nothing meaningfully Irish or Italian about them. Right. I'd certainly never been to Ireland or Italy. Uh, couldn't tell you the first thing about either country. Had you know, It was just a, a marker, and it, it, it wasn't going to shape their life choices, I, I think, in any substantial way. But but to the larger point, uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is at the same time, that's what I, I prefer to see. But I also acknowledge that my understanding of Islam may not be the one in America that that takes root or that dominates or that flourishes. It, it may be that a more identitarian Islam uh, will capture the hearts and minds of uh, a plurality of younger Muslims. And, and that may be the shape and contour of American Islam in the future. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm. Wrong about that. Well, well, look, I mean, anything is possible. It could end up that way. I don't think that prevents us from saying that it's silly, for example. You know, so yeah, <laughs> just like, you know, wokeness is a reality. It'll be around for the foreseeable future. I think a lot of it's silly and even ridiculous. I can't do anything about it. And we have to learn to live with people who we disagree with, obviously. We're all fellow Americans. Uh, but I, I, you know, I guess I would say, oh, did you want to push back? Did you want to say something? <laughs> No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm thinking about how to push back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, um, let's see where I want to go with this. Um, you, you're sort of alluding to it already. I don't think you did say that you don't think it's particularly sustainable to just have it be a cultural thing, and I agree with you because I think we're at a time when people are looking for a deeper sense of meaning. And this kind of soft Islam that is vaguely cultural but doesn't actually demand anything from its adherents, I don't see how that's compelling enough for people to want to be that or be part of it. And that's one reason. I think it's interesting to note, and I haven't particularly developed this well, but it, it's, it's interesting to me that if you look at public Muslims in the American debate, they don't actually draw a whole lot from their Islam and they don't actually make it very pronounced. And even someone like me, it's sort of unclear how my Islamic commitments drive my politics. I sometimes talk about it. It's not very explicit. It's a little bit vague, whatever. Um, in part because I would say that, you know, I'm still a somewhat quote unquote 
you know, liberal, progressive Muslim, although even those terms are worth problematizing. But compare us, say, to Catholics in the public sphere. I think Catholics on Twitter, for example, and in our politics are much more clear about how their Catholicism determines their political convictions in a way that is unapologetic and isn't trying to be soft and friendly, where I think we as American Muslims, we don't want to we don't want to wear it on our sleeves too much. Um, we we want people to think that we're nice and friendly, but honestly, is that is that actually what's ultimately compelling to people? Because why do people join religions? Why do people care about their religions? They care about them because they are distinctive. They have an edge to them. They they can be tough and adversarial sometimes. And this is where mainline Protestant churches have declined precipitously in the US in part because they don't really say anything besides, hey, let's all live together, it's all good. Even when you walk by a church and it says all are welcome, are really all welcome? Should everyone be welcome in a church? I guess the first time you go, yeah. But can you really be a member of a church for a long period of time if you don't believe in Christ or if you don't care about Christ? And yeah. that that's oh. not and we know that we know that's not compelling because less and less Americans actually go to those kinds of lovey-dovey churches, right? More and more, if you want Christianity, then get the real Christianity. And that's why we see um a sort of um, you know, evangelical churches and and the Catholic Church are the more resonant and vibrant churches in America today. I'll just so say, feel free to just that there's a lot there to I, be fair. I'll, I'll so just, feel I'll, free. Let me let me just jump in the one thing. I think just on the very narrow thing on all are welcome. That's just proselytizing, isn't it? That's just sort of like the 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 you know that that phantom limb of Christian proselytizing. They they're, but they're they not will, even trying to convert people to Christianity as Christianity. Yeah, I don't know. I I just imagine that's one of those like leftover marketing things that's you know just yeah. like left on their their. They're sort of pegboard signs, you know, outside the church. But go ahead, Harun. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump okay, so in. On I, that. No, no, I, this is fascinating. And, and this is something that preoccupies me on, on literally a daily basis as someone who, who thinks a lot, as I said, about continuity and, and the maintenance of a faith community. And, and for me, I, I will say, and maybe this is me going a little overboard, but, but I think that the moment that we find ourselves in right now as Muslims, specifically in the West, but but globally uh, at, at large, is is arguably one of the most significant moments in the history of Islam and in 1400 years of this religious tradition. And and I will unpack that by saying this: I think that the arrival of social media and and the basically universal access to a culture that is still a global culture that is still dominantly shaped by the West, whether we agree with that or not. I mean, I, I still think most of the world's pop culture is shaped by Western assumptions and norms. Even when it's reacting to it, it's still reacting to that. It's still tethered somehow to, to Western culture. This is the first time where that culture has basically entered everyone's mind. Uh, you, I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but, but, social media is now broadcasting into basically every household in the world in, in some way, shape, or form, right? And and it's obviously reacting in, in unique ways, but but the point being that a process that began with colonialism hundreds of years ago has kind of reached its zenith or, or nadir, I suppose, depending on how you look at it, now, or, or is reaching it now, where where the, the defeat of traditional Islamic civilization is basically nearly complete. 
uh, the the institutions and hierarchies and understandings that sustained an Islamic worldview for 1400 years are basically all but extinguished and dead. And I, I think emblematic of that, for example, is what we see in Saudi Arabia with MBS basically sweeping aside, you know, decades, if not centuries of a religious establishment with remarkable ease. And I, obviously some of that is is authoritarianism and totalitarianism, but some of it is because the ground has been has been weakened, right? By or or the ground on which these understandings stood has been weakened by the arrival of of mainstream culture. And so what what I am trying to say is that we right now are in a moment as Muslims where we not only can but but must rethink our relationship to our faith tradition. And that doesn't mean a, a nice and friendly tradition for the sake of a nice and friendly tradition. It means can we revisit our history and find in it something that is both morally compelling and yet meaningful and resonant for the time we live in. And, and I think for me, that's actually, it goes back to, to Demir, what you were saying at 632, when the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, passes away, you immediately have, you basically have the emergence of proto-Sunnis and proto-Shias. It's the beginning of the, the main sectarian cleavage in Islam. And it emerges because of this design feature in Islam that we have spent 1400 years running away from, and, and I am arguing we should lean into. And that is namely that, after Muhammad, peace be upon him, there is no further prophecy. The, 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 the direct link between the divine and humanity has been severed until the end of time. And what that means is no person or body or institution can ever occupy that position of authoritativeness that Muhammad, peace be upon him, occupied. And so this is the reason why I think intense Muslim religiosity often co-presents with factionalism. And and we we sort of we're we're almost blind to it or or we like to deny it or or we don't understand why it happens but but effectively it's because we do have a tradition that yes there is politics in it but there's also a lot of individual agency and a lot of individual accountability and those two work at odds with each other and and what I'm arguing for is that we need to look at that more closely and say what does that mean for the next fourteen hundred years of Islam or the next one hundred years of Islam or what have you. Okay, I want to push back on something you said that, um, to paraphrase that, there are aspects of the Islamic tradition or a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of hierarchy of knowledge and tradition that is now dead, um, you know, because of the dominance of Western culture and 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 political influence. I think there's a way to push back and to simply say that secularism to talk about maybe something a little bit different, has not actually won the day in most of the Muslim majority world. And there's still a re remarkable resistance to that. And if we look at polls to this very day, we see, especially in the Middle East and, and South and Southeast Asia, extremely large majorities saying that they want Islamic law to play a central role in public life. Now, they may not know what exactly that means to them. And once you push them, they're going to give you a whole bunch of different answers. Okay, granted. But at least there is still that basic premise that Islam has something to say about politics, and they're not denying that. They're not moving away from that. And MBS, to be quite honest, like compared to what Saudi Arabia was before, he seems like a secularizer, right? But still, Saudi Arabia today is still pretty religiously conservative, and it still does have Islamic law playing a central role in public life. And MBS, I don't think, would self-define as a secularist. He would define himself as an anti-Islamist, perhaps, which is different. 
but just to say that there there is a resistance and so that's maybe one thing but then the second aspect of that is there's something odd about us saying that the islamic tradition is dying and that liberalism or secularism or western cultural norms are now the dominant thing that no one can escape when it's those very Western cultural norms that Westerners themselves are doubting more than ever today. And that's why we have a whole movement in America. Maybe we shouldn't probably overstate it, but the fact that post-liberal intellectuals are now quite influential, certainly more influential than they were 10 or 20 years ago, it speaks to something real that more and more Americans are saying that the end of history is not enough, that liberalism is not enough, that they want more aggressive and even confrontational forms of identity. So it would be kind of odd if, as Westerners are saying that liberalism is not enough, that Muslims elsewhere are kind of saying, oh, well, we lost out and the Islamic tradition is dying, and maybe liberalism is something we have to come to terms with. So I I will push back there because I I think that well there's there's two ways to push back. The first is I I think that we're actually in some ways saying the same thing. Uh and, and what I will say there is that the the processes that are underway in in the Muslim world uh in some sense are are not dissimilar from what happened to religion in the West. And so I'm not arguing that the Muslim world must become therefore a you know a a caricature of the progressive West. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is that the modes of, of being and the institutionalization and understanding of religion that dominates in the Muslim world is not resilient enough or robust enough to survive what is coming. And if we want to get out ahead of what is coming, then we must begin the hard work of rethinking now. What, what I mean to say is, and, and this is where I think we're saying the same thing, you know, American culture was quite dominantly religious until very recently. And yet, if you look at the intellectual class, uh, it, it almost seems like American culture on a mass level sort of was on a 30-year time delay, right? So ideas that were discussed in academic circles exclusively in the 1970s and 80s have become popularized today and and have not necessarily led to any kind of deep sense of existential satisfaction, right? I'm not saying that those ideas are therefore right. I'm simply saying that this is happening. And if Muslims would like to get ahead of the curve, I and mean, we can sit there and, and assume that that the way that we understand things is going to hold the line, and it's not. And, and we either can just watch it all wash away or think very deeply and critically about what it would mean to prepare ourselves for what's coming and to create understandings of Islam that are capable of meeting what's coming without reducing themselves either to what, what we were already doing or what someone else somewhere else is doing. And, and I don't believe in, in either necessarily. I mean, again, my focus is on Islam in the West. And, and so to your point on Islamic law, I mean, if we are invested in the health and prosperity of Muslim communities, then certainly we must visit the fact that uh, an emphasis on the politicization of Islamic law often leads to factionalism and sectarianism. It doesn't lead to a necessarily more moral society, let alone any cohesive sense of Muslim solidarity. It often leads to Muslims fighting and killing each other. And so what I'm arguing is that one, uh, this kind of infighting is inherent in 
uh, an Islam that allows itself to be overtly politicized? And two, that if we want to prevent that from happening, is there some other way to develop a strong faith identity that translates itself into other ways? And, and so I don't know necessarily what that looks like. What I do know, though, is that you know, it, it's it's no different than it's it's exactly what you said, right? Like all are welcome here, right? That's not going to suffice people. And if you just hold on to it and imagine that one day everyone will walk through the door because you've asked them to walk through the door, it's not going to work. And and the 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 established understandings of Islam are fading, and and they are dissipating. And I don't see enough work being done in imagining how to reimagine an Islamic identity that is capable of meeting the challenges around the corner. I just see a lot of Muslim communities in denial or, I mean, frankly, I mean, you mentioned MBS, they just, they don't have the room to do that because they just, I mean, if they try to do that, they end up in jail or, or, you know, God knows what. So Harun, you know, you know, it's really interesting, even this part here, and maybe this is an opportunity for you to sort of sketch out a little bit more fully your vision for what um which you which you outline in the book uh for what what the the uh muslim community should look like but even to push you on exactly as you do that is to just reflect on 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 this tension you know you say what is coming i i feel i when i listen to shadi he's talking about uh predominantly com- you know communities outside of the united states outside of the west and and the sort of mores and the demands that that the faith tradition puts on them and uh, as it's experienced there. The, the interesting thing in what you're describing and the way you describe in the book, the, these, these audacious proposals for you know, updating uh, the faith for the, the next 1400 years, as you say, um, you're also very clear in the book that this is updated for the demands of citizens, Muslims living in the West, which is pluralistic and democratic. Um, and so there's a there's I think a tension in what you're talking about that that uh, you're you're trying to come up with an individualist Islam or at least like a an uh, a means of squaring uh, the parts of of the faith that that comport with uh, and are rooted in a very sort of Western modern liberal sensibility. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so I, what I will say is, and and I I know it's a it's a very uh, it's it's very much to me a work in progress, and I, I certainly don't believe I have all the answers. I I just I'm very keen to see more Muslims and and Shadi, this is to your point, to be more overtly Muslim and to jump into Islamic texts and ideas and to give ourselves permission to, uh, in good faith. Uh, sincerely contend with each other on what these texts and traditions mean. And so for me, you know, when when the the proto-Sunni community decided on a caliphate after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, it, investing that uh, that authority in the person of, of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him's father-in-law, a, a man named Abu Bakr, that was an attempt by the community to apply its own reason in the absence of, of a direct connection to the divine to its own texts and traditions to try to navigate a very difficult and challenging situation in which there wasn't a lot of room or time to to really to, to go all in right there and and that decision itself opened certain doors and closed certain doors and it, it led to 
uh, an Islamic tradition that elaborated itself over centuries and, and accomplished remarkable things. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that that doesn't mean that that tradition is uh, un-Islamic. I'm certainly not arguing that. What I'm arguing is that that was how Muslims chose to interpret the tradition on their own resources in the absence of prophetic endorsement or or direct prophetic approval or disapproval, right? They were basically doing their best, right? What in the Islamic tradition is called ijtihad, right? They were struggling, intellectually exerting themselves to, to come up with answers. And I think that we now need to do something similar. I, I would take issue with the word updating because I, I don't think it means, I'm, I'm not arguing that we change Islam. I'm saying that we're simply doing what every generation of Muslims actually morally has to do, which is figure it out for themselves. Because the the kind of the the centerpiece of the Muslim worldview, I would argue, is this idea that we are accountable to God as individuals. And so I, I certainly don't believe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a liberal secularist. I mean, the categories don't even make sense, right? He lived in the seventh century and and he is primarily, I, I say, I believe a, a moral reformer and a spiritual teacher uh, who lives in a tribal society, which has, you know, deep collective implications. Uh, but how what does that legacy mean to me now and to my community now? And, and I think that we should lean into this concept of agency and autonomy. I, I think that it is both a right and a responsibility. Uh, it, it is a right politically, but it is a responsibility theologically. And that to me is the only way, doing that is, is the only way I can see that we can create understandings of Islam and practices of Islam that will be compelling and I like what you said, Shadi, here, that will be compelling to people. And and I don't think that what's on offer in a lot of Muslim spaces is going to be very compelling 10 or 15 years down the road. It, it, it's not going to so resonate. Can, so can you tell us a little bit more about what this looks like? I mean, you do have a chapter that's titled The Case for the Caliphate. And when I first saw that, I, I assumed something different than what it turned out to be. I'm like, oh, interesting. Harun is going to make a case for the caliphate and not see that coming. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put but... this book down and walk away slowly. <laughs> no, not Shadi. Well, Shadi, we... Shadi, Shadi was, was getting excited. I think it's, it's a different thing here. It's gonna, anyway. I'm going to slip it into the backpack of the person next to me and walk <laughs> off this plane. Yeah. So, you know, okay. So the case for the caliphate, but then you clarify, and I'll just I'll just highlight a couple things that you say about this, and then we can sort of take it from there. You sure. say that this quote unquote caliphate should have no set form. You say it would change shape, for it must endlessly evolve. In another section of that chapter, you say that you describe it this way: a networked, apolitical, organic caliphate with no single figurehead and no sing and no single geographic center. Okay, that's a little bit vague and I was trying to figure out I was trying to like imagine what and maybe that's the entire point you're making that it's not something that we can really tease out in tangible form. It's like a caliphate of the mind if you will. And maybe that's where you're using this more metaphorically that each of us as individuals is our own little caliph going around, which would make sense considering that the title of your book is Two Billion Caliphs. So I'm guessing that's where you're going. But then is it really a caliphate if it's not really a caliphate? Like words still have to have meaning. 
Sure. So the 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 term itself is drawn from uh, for those who who want to I guess nerd out on it uh, is drawn from the second chapter of the Quran uh, verses thirty to forty, uh, which is the 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 Muslim Genesis narrative, the creation of Adam and Eve, and and the fall of Adam and Eve. And in in verse thirty, I believe uh, the the Quran says or, or God says, depending on how one looks at it, uh, uh, you know, for me the latter. Uh, that that the divine is creating on the earth a caliph, a khalifa, which is an Arabic term that uh, effectively means uh, a representative or someone who acts or on behalf of another. And so God is creating on the earth a caliph. Of course, God creates Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and uh, they are tempted. They eat from the tree. They fall. The story is broadly familiar, I'm sure, to, to other uh, listeners who might have uh, a Jewish or Christian background. Uh but suffice it to say, that is the the first instance, uh, linearly at least, of a mention of the caliphate in, in the Quran. And many Islamic thinkers have argued that the, the term doesn't just apply to Adam or even to Adam and Eve, but intends to apply to all human beings. That we are all created to uh, to to basically embody uh, divine direction and teaching in the world to the extent that our, our capacities enable us to. And so what I'm trying to do is draw us away from a narrative that obsesses over artificial and, and uh, frankly, often authoritarian and violent uh, fantasies of Muslim unity and, and Muslim uniformity and towards more organic forms of Muslim agency and, and collaboration, which are democratic. And so, again, you're right, it's amorphous because I, I don't think that this would necessarily have to have a specific form. It's rather, can we realize communities that locate the individual as the center of moral agency and responsibility, and that don't attempt to crush the individual in the name of some higher abstract ideal of unity or uniformity. And so I'll, I'll give you a simple example. I wrote a piece on this uh, a few weeks back for uh, CNN, and, and it was because Eid, the holiday coming up at the end of Ramadan, uh, actually we have two holidays, they're both called Eid, but this is probably explains everything you need to know about Muslims. Uh, but um, the, the holiday at the end of Ramadan is called Eid, and American Muslims often disagree on when it should be. And some Muslims find this endlessly infuriating that we can't agree on a single methodology for deciding the, the date of one of the most important holidays of the year. I actually think it's something beautiful, that it, it represents the, the flexibility and creativity and instability of the Islamic tradition in that different communities and different people emphasize different ways of interpreting texts. They're literally arguing over when to celebrate the same holiday. So they have a different conclusion to the same question. And one can be glass half empty and say, oh, different conclusion or glass half full and say, same question. And I'm, I'm glass half full. I'm actually saying more than that, that this, uh, this kind of free-for-all that is American Islam is something that's been lost in a lot of the Muslim world, and I think, frankly, is beautiful. That that there should not be a body that demands that everyone adhere to one interpretation of a text, because there is no body that can embody that kind of authority. And so, for me, that's what it means, that, that this caliphate of, of caliphs is literally people choosing to collaborate organically and democratically where they want to collaborate and going their separate ways where they do not, which is why I don't believe in this kind of set form that demands everyone do everything the same way. And, and I know Eid is like a holiday seems like a trivial thing, but to me, it, it, it represents something bigger that we can but, either agree mm. to disagree or constantly fight over the fact that we are going to disagree. But this pluralistic sensibility, which you're pointing to, 
it wasn't lost in the Middle East because of the caliphate, the historical caliphate. I would actually argue that a lot of the pluralistic tradition was lost precisely because of modern innovations, the modern nation state or the secular state to be more specific. And I think that maybe this is one point of divergence. I don't actually see political Islam as being what has aggravated conflict in the Muslim world. I actually put more of the blame on secular regimes because primarily they are, they're not secular in the actual sense, they're ostensibly secular. They claim to be more secular. They claim to be anti-Islamist. They claim to be pro-Western. It's these authoritarian regimes with the exception, um, Iran being one of the main exceptions, but I think it's an exception that sort of proves the rule. If we look at the most problematic actors that cause conflict in the Middle East on, on the broader level, it's not actually Islamist parties. It's not the Muslim Brotherhood. It's not people who say, let's have, um, let's start Islamic political parties. It's those who want to suppress them. So I would just maybe, and I think that if you look at the caliphate as it's actually been um, understood and realized in the real world for the better part of 14 centuries, it was always quite pluralistic. This idea that the historical caliphate equals a theocratic project that imposes one way of being on Muslims, I'm not sure that's the right way to view it. That's not what you're saying, but I, I think sometimes when you talk about, about the caliphate historically, I want, it's almost as if you're saying that it's a very... It's a it's a very unitary thing when it was actually quite decentralized in practice. Yeah, you're and, and as someone who apparently openly compares himself to the Ottoman Empire, I, I entirely agree. Um, but uh, <laughs> you know, in in seriousness, no, you're right, and and I would take that further and and say that actually, uh, it's it's not just the secular regimes that have caused more harm. Uh, you know, in 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 terms of the uh, you know the many challenges that the the muslim majority world confronts now but that including islamist parties uh would have been not just more strategically intelligent but more moral as well it, it's a, a fundamentally uh, and again i don't want to impose a western liberal model on societies where it doesn't necessarily make sense but at the same time you know a, a minimum condition of a, of a good government is that it is reasonably representative of its constituent parts Right. So if, like you said, Shadi, if significant parts of a country uh, have a certain moral vision, then they should at least have some kind of means of having their point of view reflected uh, in, in policy and so on and so forth. I, I guess we're and, and I'm glad you're pushing me on this because I, I need to be more precise with it. But for me, the, the problem is that the the pre-modern caliphate, so let's say the Ottoman Empire before it collapsed and, and earlier iterations of Muslim societies, uh, were far more pluralistic, in fact, than many Muslims are today. But they were also pre-modern states that simply are not capable of meeting the needs of modern populations, right? Like a, a 15th century Ottoman Empire recreated in the Middle East would not be able to marshal the resources necessary to handle climate change or education or infrastructure. And, and I mean, obviously, you know this, right? But to me, it's that some Muslims have romanticized and 
I idolized and fetishized the idea of unity and they've translated it into slogans like caliphate and Islamic state and so on and so forth, sometimes alluding to the pre-modern period without realizing that that, that period is done. It's just, it's not going to come back, uh, not only because it's unrealistic, but because if it did, it would produce societies that would be completely incapable of meeting the challenges of the world around them. They would just rapidly be recolonized, right? And and so for me, it's it's a I'm using the term caliph in a way to kind of maybe trigger a response, and and it's a it's a little bit uh, incendiary or provocative on purpose. But but the point is to say, how do we draw people's attention away from a narrative that has emerged within some Muslim spaces that I think is doing Islam and Muslims an injustice, and towards a relationship to our faith tradition that is more likely to bring about the things that we ourselves say we want. But Haroon, you know, this is a, this really is striking again. Um, I, and so I was pushing in the last time, uh, this last question I asked, and I'll try it again. The extent to which, um, fine, not an update, but a a uh, reaching into the tradition to uh, you know find meaning in and a different approach. You know, even in that chapter where you talk about uh, the caliphate, your your vision of the caliphate, you also seem to sort of struggle and sometimes say that you know that it 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 does predominantly apply to Western Muslims, Western Muslims living in plural democratic societies. Now, even now, when you talk about it, I think there's a built-in assumption that the only way that big problems like climate change will be addressed is through modern, liberal, plural democracies. That's the only way that it goes on this. But at the same time, you seem to recognize that that the project as you're defining it, at least for now, is only applicable to Muslims living in such societies. Is that fair? Because I, I, I guess even just listening to you talk sometimes on this, I mean, I, I'm generally, you know, you have even a passage in there where you're, you're, you're quite sanguine about the European Union as a project. You 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 write about Tim Snyder and, and his 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 writings. Uh, I'm 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 a lot less sanguine about the European Union. You know, I, I think it's 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 a nice idea. I, I think it's it's many ways it's it's failing politically. Um, and so I'm less sanguine about this idea that that the only way we're going to solve the big challenges is basically evolving down the path we're going. I'm not sure that that you know. I mean, I I think I've, I've generally a feeling we'll muddle through somehow but i don't think it's it's a it's a it's a path of progress on here that's why i'm i'm struck a little bit by this i feel like you are is it fair to say that that you know you your um your politics are fully sort of modern western liberal and you're seeking a way to incorporate the faith part into that in a way and then therefore I guess your faith in the sort of modern Western liberal project to conquer the world on some level is is sort of built into that. Is that right? No, I, I don't think that's correct. So mm -hmm. I, I will I will push back. I will say I, I never said that the only thing that can tackle climate change is a modern liberal pluralistic democracy. I said that a pre-modern state cannot, right? So China is a modern state, so is the United States, mm -hmm. right? Very mm -hmm. different types of state, but both are modern. And arguably China has a better chance of of tackling climate change than we do, right? At least given our present political polarization and, and so on and so forth. What I was trying to say in the earlier point is that a pre-modern state uh, simply does not have the ability 
to bring about the kinds of policies and changes that our present moment requires. Whether that is liberal, democratic, secular, so on and so forth is uh, a different debate. It's no less important, but I think it's it's simply underlying the fact that a modern bureaucratized state mm. uh, is is qualitatively different from pre-modern states writ large, right? So there's he, there's really nothing mm. in the Islamic period before colonialism that approximates uh, anything from France to the Soviet Union to uh, Canada to uh, Taiwan, what have you, right? Different different types of states, right? But there is there is this transition, and we can get into the question of what is modernity and so on and so forth. And and to the second point, what I am arguing is that that the vision of moral agency is essential to Islam, and it will be increasingly important for Muslims to hold on to, given the turbulence that is coming. Now that said. My vision, as as you know, you had alluded to before in, in the book, is focused on Muslims in the West because I think that the West has certain distinguishing characteristics and realities that make our priorities and contexts as Muslims in the West just different than mm-hmm. Muslims in the Muslim majority world. I I don't actually know what Muslim majority societies should do, I, I'm just being honest, in terms of handling and addressing their challenges. I would like to see them become more inclusive and representative and more competent and more humane, right? And and there are obviously, there's a you know huge diversity of societies, right? Everything from Indonesia to Syria, right? These are, it's, I mean, even putting them into the same category is, is kind of, uh, you know, is, is actually frankly dangerous, right? But there are certain common trends and challenges in terms of poverty and development and so on and so forth that I think broadly speaking apply to many of these states. I don't intend, I don't want the West to run roughshod over the world. Uh, I'm not arguing for any kind of Western imperialism. In fact, the, the the very position I take that this applies to Western Muslims is, I think, a modest one of saying that I don't have a right to dictate the form other societies take. I do believe I have a responsibility as an American invested in the West uh, to articulate a vision for my co-religionists in societies that have deep and and meaningful relationships with each other, as you know, we've seen in the last several months, uh, I don't believe that that then translates into impositional narratives in terms of telling people in, for example, Pakistan or Afghanistan what they should do or shouldn't do. I don't even go to the extent of saying that pre-modern Islam is somehow less Islamic, whatever that term means. I'm simply saying that the narratives that many Muslims are holding on to are not going to be sufficient to meet their challenges. They need, We need to do a lot of rethinking. And for Muslims in the West especially, uh, we need to create more organic narratives that emphasize flexibility, creativity, moral agency, and autonomy, and that this is consonant with the Islamic tradition. It's not a, it's not a deviation from the Islamic tradition. It's not an updating of the Islamic tradition. It's, a, it's a, a sincere outcome of a sincere engagement with a faith tradition. I don't know if that made sense. I hope it did. No, totally. No, it does. And I think that, um, I, I mean, Demir's, you probably know this, Haroon, since you're a you listen to the podcast um, that Demir doesn't believe in progress. So he, <laughs> so yeah, that's, I that's, mean, the, don't... that's the core of, of this debate, but yeah, no, go on. Do you, do you know why Demir doesn't believe in progress? Shadi, you don't understand this yet. Cause you're a millennial, right? Like I, my hair is not coming back, right? Like there's, this is all a fiction we've been fed. I, 
I went on this routine in the last year where I started going to the gym regularly and I, I set myself goals and I was, I, I hate to use this word cause I'm, I'm Muslim, but I was militant about it. And I, I had goals and I was like, I'm going to get myself into the best shape of my life. And one, and I, and for some reason I fixated on bench pressing and I went in one day in like February and I bench pressed more than I've ever done in my life. Right. I'm not going to say what, cause it's embarrassing. Right. Not just for you, but for me. Right. And I was so proud of myself and I like got up and I might've like thrown a fist in the air. I don't know. There might've been a thuck beer in there. Nobody knows. Right. It's fine. Cause the gym is, it's like suburban Ohio. It's 50% uh, third world at this point. And, um, and I say that proudly. And literally I walked away and I went to get a, like, I refilled my water bottle and some kid who was like 15 years old saw the bench and saw it was empty and just went and like knocked out like, I don't know, 10 or 12 reps without even like thinking. Yeah. And it was like, how is that this Demir, I'm with you. There's no yeah. such thing as progress. Yeah, like, how is yeah. that even fair? <laughs> right. Like he didn't even, he didn't like stretch or anything. He looked like he weighed 25 pounds and he just conquered what I took like a year to do. And then I, I I went home and I had a moment of of deep spiritual crisis and and it's been it's been wow. going since Ramadan alleviated it a little bit but it's it it hasn't fully lifted off my shoulders. Wow, that is dark, um, isn't it? And I isn't suppose it? it's a metaphor for something for decline in yeah, general. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe with a final thought because we are we are coming to the end of this. I I wanna. I hope this isn't too much of a right turn, so to speak, but I do think it is worth talking about Sufism for a moment. And I think that some listeners might find this vaguely intriguing. And um, and it's hard to bring it into the conversation simply because you do sort of end with this. And it struck it. I think it struck me as a, a little bit jarring and you title that chapter, Why I Am No Longer a Sufi. And you probably would have to go into a lot of your own personal story, but I think it is a lot of Americans have heard about Sufism. They see Sufism as the kind of, um, the more spiritual version of Islam that again is maybe, you know, more tolerant, pluralistic. It's less focused on the law. It's about finding personal union with God. So in a sense, you transcend the law and you find this, this deeper oneness with God, um, so on and so forth. And you tried this out and it's part of your journey. And I think it informs a lot of what you discuss in your work and in your speaking. But then you come to this conclusion, and I just think it's worth dwelling on it for a moment and maybe going beyond what you actually say in the book, because I'm just kind of curious what you, I, I don't know what you want to say about it, but it seems like a pretty big thing that we shouldn't kind of leave out without addressing at least a little bit. Yeah, so uh, it, it's embarrassing to admit, but I'm I'm glad you, you raised it because it is a, a central part of the book uh, that I, I felt like. I had, as I said at the very opening of our conversation, that I, I struggled for a long time to figure out a, a mode of practice of Islam that worked for me and that that pulled me in the right direction, religiously speaking, in terms of where I wanted to be spiritually, ethically, so on and so forth. And and I I thought I found it maybe about five or six years ago when I kind of fell into and, and joined a small Sufi circle 
in in Manhattan. And and you're right, Shadi. And and this is something that used to frustrate me to no degree that we had this narrative post 9-11 of good Islam and bad Islam, right? And and usually good Islam or bad Islam, the only difference was whether or not it supported, you know, a certain foreign policy or not. And and so uh, you know, good Islam was often Sufi and and ostensibly pluralistic and and very loose and and happy and loving. And bad Islam was Salafis and and why would anyone be a Salafi and and that kind of thing. And it and it was very dismissive and and there were class elements and, and a lot of other things in operation there. But but suffice it to say, it was this very powerful binary that we constructed and imposed. And, and I ended up falling in love with the Sufi circle and, and really feeling like it was a spiritual home for me. And I have to be clear in saying this, that I never experienced anything in this circle that I found problematic, nor did I ever hear of anything in this circle that I found problematic. There were intellectual positions that, you know, over time I grew alienated from and uncomfortable with, but there was nothing on the order of anything I would consider an injustice or an outrage or, or harm. It was simply a matter of a different worldview. But I, as I immersed myself in this world, I started hearing from people who were sort of exiles from Sufism, who were refugees from the Sufi complex, as I term it in the book. And, and effectively, what I, I saw was that here is this entire establishment, uh, a very narrow, insular world where people arrogate to themselves. And here you can tell why I'm so passionate about this, that they say they speak in the name of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. They arrogate to himself, to themselves his authority. And and they are ostensibly apolitical, but no less dangerous for it because you can also, you can do spiritual harm, right? You can do moral harm. It's not, there's other forms of abuse other than just political injustice and, and political authoritarianism. There's religious authoritarianism and cultural space and so on and so forth. And, and I just found over and over again dozens of stories of of muslims mostly women but but also men who had been abused and and mistreated and and actively harmed by people in positions usually almost always men but not always uh in, in positions of self-appointed authority who would trumpet things like the scholars are the the heirs of the prophets, in, in effect saying that we are no different than the prophet or we are as good as, as the prophet in, in terms of our authority over you. And they, in, in many respects, it felt to me like how I'm sure a lot of Catholics felt about the church when the abuse was uncovered. And certainly, I don't have any hard data. I, I don't have, there's no reports. I, I'm not a journalist who works on anything like this. But there are now a number of reputable organizations, uh, I'm happy to share them uh, with you separately, that that uncover this kind of abuse and, and help people who have uh, gone through this kind of abuse rebuild their lives. But it, it's caused a lot of harm. And so I'm very alive to the fact that simply because uh, a mode of Islam advertises itself as better or more pluralistic does not necessarily mean that's the case. And, and this is why we need individual agency and transparency. Because if you construct hierarchies of knowledge and power that have no checks and balances, and this is not about liberal or secular or anything, it's about the basic dignity of every single human being, that a system that cannot be challenged will inevitably and necessarily become abusive. And, and these systems cannot be challenged. The, the, the amount of work you have to do to, to break through them is practically impossible. And, and the average person who doesn't have the religious resources, who doesn't have the cultural capital, who doesn't have uh, the support network simply cannot do it. They become ensnared in it. They can become destroyed by it. And therefore, it is an obligation for Muslims uh, as members of all faith communities uh, have the same obligation 
to construct communities where we treat the the everyday congregant and everyday believer with the same level of reverence that we do the person who stands at the pulpit, if not, in fact, more so. And and so I would say that this element applies beyond categories of West and Muslim world, beyond categories of liberal and secular, to the simple need to respect how God made people and that nobody has the authority to take away what God has given people. Okay, well, I am glad that I asked that question because that was, I think, really important to hear and um, quite an eloquent uh, call to arms, uh, obviously a nonviolent one, of course. Um, but, um, and maybe just, I'll, I'll end with just a very quick follow-up is, um, what I know you may not wanna be labeled, but you could just describe, I, I'm just curious, just listening to you right now, where have you found the most peace in this current iteration of your stage? Are you part of a certain, like vibe or scene, Muslim scene that you found that is more conducive to the kind of spirituality that you're seeking right now. What, I mean, where are you going? Where are you right now? And, um, or are you sort of still in a state of transition? So I, I heard once something from a, a, a teacher a long time ago who said, uh, you should have many teachers. And I, I try to hew to that politically, culturally, and religiously. And I, I try to keep an open mind. I don't identify as a progressive or a conservative. I find elements of the right and the left compelling and, and intriguing. And I, I try to learn from and open myself up to uh, different perspectives. And, and religiously the same, I, I attend a few mosques here in suburban Cincinnati. And, and that's part of my religious life. But so is my family and, and my own upbringing and, and my engagement with that heritage. And I think the best way to protect myself from the naivete, frankly, for lack of a better term, that I, I displayed in years previous is by allowing myself to constantly be open to different modes of Muslimness and, and different modes of Americanness. And, and not to say that, you know, everything is the same, not at all, but, but to say that, that I don't have all the answers and I'll never have all the answers. And, and I can learn more in community uh, to, to, effectively say to learn more from the people around me than simply on my own resources or from a very small sample of people. I love that. That's a good note to end on. Usually in the podcast, we end on a very dark note. So we're offering something a little bit different to listeners this time around. You heard something positive and life-affirming. Appreciate that. Savor it because it may not happen again. And don't dwell on on gyms and, and, uh, and decline like that. Absolutely not. Karun, Karun, this was really terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Thanks so much, Karun. Yeah, this was great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.